Hi, this is State Delegate Janelle Wilkins from District 20 in Montgomery County, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the best source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy. And welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here today with Dominic Butchko. Dominic, how are you? It's Thursday, June 22nd. How's Dom today? Dom is doing good today, Kevin. Dom's doing good. All right, that's good to hear. And today, Dom, we're going to talk about commercial real estate. Obviously, this is in the news a lot because of COVID and what it's going to mean, the lingering effects for commercial real estate. And I'll, I'll kick it off this way. For decades, commercial real estate has served as a safe investment for the public and private sectors. Policymakers and investors alike viewed commercial corridors as engines of growth. And that's because leases were traditionally longer than residential real estate, translating into more predictable revenues and profits. And for counties, that means a steady stream of income, both from property taxes and through job creation. But like many things in the modern world, COVID-19 has significantly disrupted this model, and we see it almost every day, Dom, headlines pointing to the weaknesses in the commercial real estate market. And, you know, I think working from home certainly is going to be a lasting legacy of the pandemic, and that's a problem for commercial real estate. And according to Bloomberg, distress is spreading in the U.S. commercial real estate industry with the amount of troubled assets climbing to nearly $64 billion in the first quarter of this year. That's a big number. And as many news outlets point to surplus office space as the harbinger of the next economic recession, it is important to understand the current state of commercial real estate and what the market is going to do next. And of course, we have Dom with us to discuss all of this. You wrote a great piece on the blog, and we're going to get into that. And I mean, post-pandemic, kids are back in school, retirees are back on cruise ships, physical stores are doing better than expected, but offices are still struggling, perhaps than more than most casual observers even realize. And the consequences for landlords, banks, local governments, and even individual portfolios are going to be likely far-reaching. So Dom, what is the current state of commercial real estate? Yeah, so that that is a very big question right now. So let's dive into this a little bit. Before the pandemic, private industry was already gradually transitioning to remote work. Uh, most of this transition, though, was seen really in the tech set, uh, sector. That is where it was concentrated the most. You know, very interesting thing. Advents in technology meant for at least a generation now before COVID, employees could theoretically work from home. But a lot of that deeply ingrained office culture meant managers were really wary of offering that flexibility. But as you said, COVID-19 came along and that really just upended everything, flipped the entire table, changed the game. And so we really started to see dynamics uh, forced to change. And so employers now who were against remote work now had a choice. You either pivot or you shutter operations. And I think it's obvious what most of the economy was able to do. As communities started to reopen, as vaccines became available, we really started to see people get out more. The economy started to grow and rebound. But one area of the economy that is still significantly lagging is the commercial real estate sector. You know, almost overnight, many companies who, like I said, were fighting work from home 
we're embracing it. And now we have workers who, for the first time in decades, have the upper hand in the labor market. They are deeply committed to holding on to this flexibility. Right. And I, I know environmentalists join the chorus of supporters citing less pollution from commuting. Those companies that are still opposed in some form uh, from work from home were at a strategic disadvantage, right? So unless you made that pivot, as you said, you were at a disadvantage because people felt empowered and people moved jobs and they wanted more flexibility. So today, most organizations are using a hybrid model where workers spend some time in the office and some time at home. And Dom, we know the transition to remote or hybrid work gutted a lot of demand for commercial office space with you know, some level of remote work as common practice. Employers obviously began shrinking their office footprints, but that shrinkage has translated into less revenue from rent, less economic activity from workers using the goods and services in commercial corridors. So think about your lunch shop, your hot dog vendor, all the businesses that support these commercial office buildings. And then, of course, public transit, ridership may be down. So you have a lot of pressure to maintain revenue to support that transit. And then, of course, less revenues uh, generally, um, and then people taking greater liabilities for property owners and for counties, because, again, counties are heavily reliant on property tax revenue. And in Maryland, of course, that's the number one generator for, for county governments in terms of revenue. So a lot to think about there. I think there is there is a push and a pull, and there are trade-offs on both sides. But, I mean, Dom, that's kind of, of where we are now. And I think, you know, I, I know that you you talked about a governing piece um, we always like governing and they they do good work. And you talked about something that they said in your latest piece. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think I'm going to use a quote from them. I, I think they really describe the current trend best. And this is also quoted in the actual deep dive itself for those of you who want to go back and find it. But governing said a vicious cycle is emerging. Lower office building use leads to less spending at surrounding businesses and as leases turn over, less there's less revenue rent. This leaves less money available for building improvements, which further decreases property values and resources for maintenance and upgrade. As vacancies persist, businesses that cater to office workers close or relocate, creating more vacancies and often causing public safety problems that cities, or in our case counties, struggle to address with uh, while dealing with diminishing tax revenues, you know, unquote. And this really spells it out. So we have these commercial corridors that we have all agreed, you know, as a county that we are going to invest in. They're going to be the beating economic heart. And then when we're not seeing that density, that rush of people go in, that economic activity and churn happen in those corridors, there's less resources to go around. And a lot of that is now falling on the business owners to maintain with less resources and the counties to maintain, again, with less resources. Now, let me throw some data at you that I think really kind of paints this picture of what's going on in Maryland. First and foremost, counties are feeling this. Downtown Baltimore City has a vacancy rate of 20%. Bethesda in Montgomery County has a vacancy rate of 22.5%. And Montgomery County broadly has a vacancy rate of 20.5%. Neighboring Washington, D.C. has a similarly high rate at 19.5%. Now, consider this. The national average is 16.4%. So the two major urban areas, the D.C. area and the Baltimore area, are experiencing commercial vacancy rates higher 
than the national rate. Now, to put this in context, it's not all bad news. There are certain parts of Maryland that are not experiencing averages that are higher than the or, or vacancy rates that are higher than the national average. So Columbia and Howard County, their vacancy rate is only 12.5%, which is well below. But again, even at 12.5%, you're still, you know, anything above 10%, that's a lot of space not being used. First of all, it's a waste, but then we're not collecting revenue, we're not seeing productivity. So like there's a lot going into this and counties are ultimately the ones as well as the private sector who are going to feel the most impact. Right. So that's where we are. I think that's a pretty good job of laying out the current situation. COVID really uh, put commercial real estate into a tailspin. We know that more people are working from home and that means fewer tax dollars for counties, a lot of wasted space. But of course, you also have benefits from fewer people commuting. That's good for the environment. But Dom, as we sort of take all of this in and we realize where we are, and you mentioned some of the vacancy rates, and this is a problem nationally, certainly we're feeling it a little bit more here in the D.C., uh, Baltimore metro region. Um, the current state of, of commercial real estate is certainly concerning for many reasons, but we do know that some of the big companies, the Googles of the world, are starting to force their workers back into the office, and that's causing problems uh, between workers who, like we mentioned earlier, love this newfound freedom and flexibility that they can work from anywhere. Is that a signal for what's next, Dom? Is this what we're going to see? More companies telling people, okay, it's time to get back into the office. We, we're paying for this. You know, We don't want this to be a sunk investment and we need our people back in the office for camaraderie or whatever. But we are seeing a trend, particularly in the tech sector, which is interesting because earlier you mentioned they sort of started this trend of remote workforce, but it seems to be the tech companies, big tech, now signaling that they want people back into the office. And the tech industry kind of drives the train, I think, when it comes to workforce and, and how these policies develop and evolve. So what is going to happen next, Dom? What's down the road for commercial real estate? Yeah, so there's a, a few things in there. Let's piece those apart. First and foremost, if I was a betting man, I'm going to say remote work is full stop here to uh, stay. We are not putting the genie back into the bottle. People's productivity is relatively the same. Workers are now prioritizing where do they want to go next. Remote work is a part of that. Jobs that offer flexibility that we've had during COVID, people have gotten used to that. I don't think we are ever going to get rid of this model going forward. That being said, there is still a need for people coming into the office, you know, working with those creative juices, getting that connective tissue with you and your colleagues. So there's a lot of places commercial real estate can go next. I want to preface that, my next statement with that. In the deep dive, though, we covered one of them that appears to be probably the most likely trajectory that this uh, area will go into. And it's two words mixed use. So what is mixed use? The Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis put out a really good definition. So, quote, mixed use developments provide more than one use or purpose within a shared building or development area. Mixed use projects may include any combination of housing, office, retail, medical, recreational, commercial, or industrial components, end quote. So what is mixed use? Instead of having those corridors that we talked about that are going to be singularly commercial, singularly residential, singularly industrial, et cetera, we are now going to see more community-based development where we're going to have, instead of a downtown that's just the financial district, you're now going to be able to live, work, and play in that district. So with current 
work from home trends looking like they're going to stay, the best way to revitalize Maryland's sluggish downtowns is to turn to this mixed use model and really make these communities more livable. Now, what does that ultimately mean? It means that we're going to have to provide more amenities and services. We're going to have to redo our public transit and make sure that there's access to these areas. We're going to have to increase walkability. Walkability is really big, especially for, you know, as the millennials and Gen Z and new generations are coming on, that walkability and that community feature is becoming more and more important. And also an emphasis on safety. You know, as we were talking about before, as these commercial corridors become less used, there's really a fear of safety then because there's less people. So safety also has to be a really big component of anything mixed use going forward. Now, the next question is, how are we going to achieve this? And we're going to achieve it through few, uh, for, through two ways, either through conversion or through future development. So what is conversion? Conversion is when you take an office building and you convert it to either mixed use or residential. So you literally redo the building, you you know tear some floors out, you put in some plumbing and everything else, and you gen and you fundamentally change what the building is used for. Conversion is not feasible for every office building. In fact, office buildings built prior to World War II are probably going to be the ones that are going to be easiest to convert. Anything built after that, think of offices with cube farms, that's going to be a lot harder. Not impossible, but a lot harder to convert. And so in those areas, we'll discuss that, what you do with those. But again, conversion is probably going to be one of the best ways that we're going to revitalize some of our downtowns and get people into our historic urban cores. The second method that we talked about, future development. And so this is when we're going in and we're saying, where are we going to build in the future? And we're going to make sure that it's mixed use and that it's flexible. As we know, the economy shifts, things change. Think of the situation that we're dealing with right now. We built entire urban corridors, entire office buildings with only one purpose. We have to make sure that as we're developing into the future, we retain that flexibility. And that looks like either new construction, so we're going to completely build a new urban area, or if we have you know, a building with a ton of cube farms that we just can't do anything with feasibly, that looks like demolition and reconstruction. In all likelihood, future development will give us the greater yield compared to conversion, but both of these are gonna be big tools when we're pushing down that mixed youth path, uh, pathway. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. And I think generally a lot of these luxury buildings, if you will, ones with lots of amenities, they will still draw their high-end clients. And so those commercial properties are probably going to be fine, but it does seem likely, as you said, that others, you know, older facilities with fewer amenities, are going to need to be torn down or retooled for other purposes. And Dom, with a third of office of all office leases expiring by 2026, I think it's fair to say we can expect higher vacancies, significantly lower rents, or both. So there is a revolution here that is going to have to happen, much like COVID forced people's hand when it came to remote work. I think just this situation with commercial property is going to force a lot of folks' hands when it comes to how we rethink what uh, commercial corridors are going to look like and what people are going to do with a lot of these commercial buildings. And of course, if you're banks, uh, you're kind of worried about this too, right? You could have a lot of people just turning the keys over to the bank. Uh, the bank will have to come in, foreclose, and that creates a problem. When you have a bunch of commercial properties across the country you know, coming due to renew leases or whatnot, all of a sudden you, you do have a problem. And we also know that a lot of people's pensions are invested in these markets. And so I think it's a worry for a lot of people, but hopefully, as you said, 
through retooling and new development, uh, we can kind of absorb this shock. But I do think in the meantime, there is going to be a lot of pain as as counties, as states, as policymakers try to develop this new framework, you are going to have people who are going to suffer. And like I said before, a lot of the businesses that support these commercial industries, these commercial buildings, they're going to take a hit when you have fewer people downtown in these areas, especially as commercial buildings undergo, you know, redevelopment or retooling, you know, sort of rethinking what the buildings can be used for. There is going to be some suffering and that's going to have to be, you know, part of all of this in terms of thinking. So I think that is an interesting idea moving forward. But I am interested, Dom, in this concept of sort of mixed use that seems to be the trend as we move forward for lots of communities. And that seems like it's going to be the answer here as we try to cope with what to do with all this vacant office space. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And so counties recognize too that this whole mixed use, first of all, there's a lot of moving parts here. There's a lot of stakeholders and they recognize that they're central players in making sure that this strategy is a success. And so I want to highlight some of the things that our jurisdictions are doing. So broadly, how are we going to get there? We're going to incentivize public-private partnerships. We're going to streamline permitting. We're going to rework land use and regulations, and we're going to develop strategies. So when you're making your master plan, your comp plan, et cetera, when you're making plans for communities, you're going to make sure that mixed use is really prioritized in that where appropriate. And a lot of our jurisdictions are already leading the charge to do this. There is one thing I want to highlight, though, because, you know, we're the Maryland Association of Counties, we're MACO, we focus on that level of government. But counties, and I want to underline this for our listeners, because I feel like this gets lost sometimes in the messaging. Counties cannot undertake this transformation alone, and we will not be successful as a community, broadly Maryland as a community, if counties do this alone. Private stakeholders and state stakeholders also have a major role in this. From the private sector, they need to be prepared and they need to plan. Sometimes mixed use or converting to residential isn't going to be appropriate because the building's profitable and everyone wants to be there. We're seeing that a lot with the newer developments that, like you were saying, offer all the amenities. If those don't need to be converted, that's fine. But we need to make sure that we have a plan with the private sector, that the private sector is planning for if they do have a property that they think is going to be in danger, they're communicating, they're doing everything necessary to make sure that they can redevelop it. And then the state needs to continue, again, where appropriate, certain incentives. So think of tax credits, think of technical support, think of other things to keep these projects affordable. And a lot of the historic structures, think Baltimore City, a lot of them would not be financially viable without the state tax credits keeping it forward. So this mixed use conversion, this path we're, we're blazing forward can happen, but it needs to happen at the county level, it needs to happen at the private level, and it needs to happen at the state level. Absolutely. I think it's it's important. The state is a big player in this. I mean, many states, including Maryland, depend on counties and, and cities and, and have their own struggles. But local and state governments, I think, need to coordinate to make better use of resources, speed up the approval of new projects and pressure the federal government to provide more funding. So, I mean, I think all everybody, like you said, there are many stakeholders here. Everybody's going to have to work together. There is another issue that that I want to point out that's near and dear to, to Mako's heart. And surprise, surprise, if I'm talking about it, it probably has to do with taxes and local flexibility. And this is an issue that has popped up over the, the last few years in the form of a few bills. And essentially, this is it. Under current Maryland law, 
municipalities have broad discretion to impose separate property tax rates on different subclasses of real property. So think residential, commercial, on and on and on. You could have different subclasses and therefore different rates. And so you can spread out the burden a little bit more. You know, you can pull those levers and sort of balance things out depending on what your situation is in your county. Right now, counties don't have that flexibility, even though the subclasses are already established in land use codes by the state departments of assessments and taxation. So municipalities have this authority, counties do not. This is about equity and taxation. This is about flexibility. And as we're talking about the commercial properties, I think it's important to throw that out there that this is still something that MAKO cares about. I know that our counties care about it. We're always about more flexibility. But I think when it comes to equity and taxation, that's been a big focus for county governments over the, the past few years. And having that flexibility to impose different rates on different subclasses of property, I think is a really good tool in the toolbox for counties. Again, municipalities already have this authority. So this is something that is not gonna go away. I think you'll continue to hear MAKO pounding the drum and our counties pounding the drum to give us more flexibility, not just there, but across the board. Of course, this is the county podcast, so we're gonna advocate for that, but that is one that sticks out to me. And as we talk about commercial property and the state of commercial property, I think it's important to, to mention that that's still something we'd like to see is more flexibility for counties to create more equitable tax structures by having different subclasses and, and being able to apply different rates. And you know, Kevin, if I can touch on that too, the equity issue. So counties deal with a lot of stuff and there's two areas that have to do with not only this deep dive that we did, but my portfolio. I'm thinking transit and I'm thinking climate. So as we kind of change as a society, first of all, access to public transit and more efficient transit in general, super important, super important when it comes to equity. Same thing with climate as we're seeing climate change, as we're seeing our planet shift, how we handle that. Again, very important when it comes to equity, very important when it comes to environmental justice. And a lot of that starts with our taxing structure. A lot of that starts with, you know, what is your fee to belong to society, but also how are we going to fund the projects to kind of keep the trains moving on time and to keep everything going? And so this core piece that people might not think about with infrastructure and everything else, this tax piece, this is huge. This is an absolutely huge piece. Absolutely. And I think another piece of this, you know, with the commercial market, uh, the cost of borrowing, I mean, rapid interest rates hikes by central banks have increased the returns on risk-free government bonds. So a lot of commercial real estate investors demand more yield to justify holding such an um, illiquid asset, right? And so I think that's a crisis too, just the cost of borrowing is causing problems for the, the commercial industry. So that's something that we're gonna have to, to take into account as well. Of course, that's not a county government issue, but certainly when it comes to, to falling valuations and the cost of borrowing, that's also a big deal for the market and for the industry. So Dom, let's, let's, let's talk about some final thoughts. We know this is a problem uh, across the board, particularly as we sit the county governments were worried about tax revenue. Like we said, this is a big component of our tax base, commercial property. And as many of these buildings sit vacant, we're not bringing in that revenue. And of course, we need that revenue to pay for things like schools, public safety, affordable housing, uh, you know, transportation across the board. So that is concerning. And then we know that this is concerning for people who are afraid they're going to lose their jobs. And we know this is concerning for companies who are trying to figure out what to do next and how to handle remote work. So give us some closing thoughts here, Dom, as we wrap this up. A lot to cover here today, but I think we hit most of the bullets. 
Yeah. So bottom line, what do our listeners need to walk away with? So first and foremost, the commercial real estate market is fundamentally changing. What that change will look like, I don't have a crystal ball and I can't tell you 100%, but looking at where we are at right now as a society and current trends, I think the deep dive does a really good job of underlining. We're probably staying with remote work and mixed use is probably the best way to go. Counties are responsible for land use. We are responsible for shaping the look, smell, and feel of your community. So we have an outsized role in this conversation and being a driver in the solution. That being said, we cannot do this alone. And I just want to underline, this is going to be solved with coordination, not only with the counties, but with the private sector and with the state. And if all three parties don't come together to solve this, we are going to have urban corridors and those you know, historic downtown areas that are just not as vibrant and the economic engines that they could be otherwise. And so, you know, Mako is here willing to work with everyone. We want to come together. You know, I hope we can get this done. Yeah, and I'll add my my closing thought. I mean, when we talk about converting buildings, um, you know, modernizing and adapting buildings to reflect today's more flexible working practices, um, you know, the, the issue there, I think, and that's where we need to be careful, older buildings can be very expensive to upgrade and improvements in energy efficiency that are now demanded by policymakers, consumers and corporations add to that cost. So in many cases, the economics of these investments don't stack up, at least at current prices. So we need to make sure we're pulling the right levers because we don't want to see a wave of foreclosures as landlords you know, give up buildings that they can't profitably invest in back to their lenders. So I think that we're doing a lot for the climate. We're asking a lot in terms of energy efficiency and upgrades. But when you're thinking about, is it worth it to put all this money in at, in the current market? I think that that's 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 worrisome because I think the answer for a lot of folks is going to be no. I think it's very important to be more energy efficient and to make these upgrades. I think this is a particularly um, difficult case when it comes to the current market and you know people looking at this right now and saying, okay, well we could upgrade this. And we can put all this money into it, but are we going to get the bang for our buck? And again, I'm worried that a lot of people are going to say no. So I think for policymakers, for state and local governments and the federal government, everybody's going to have to come together and hope for a smooth landing here and try to get this right. But this is one where if you pull one lever, it's going to have cascading effects. So you have to be able to balance this all out. And I think it's a fascinating policy issue and question and certainly one that's not going to go away. So Dom, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to post Dom's deep dive article on the Conduit Street blog on the show notes for this podcast. So please go ahead and read that. A lot of what Dom and I talked about today is in there and a lot of uh, links for you to, to take a look at. But this is a, a big, big, big issue. And thank you so much, Dom, for coming on. It's always a good day when I'm on Conduit Street. Thanks for having me, Kevin. All right, we will leave it there for today. Of course, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, you should read the Conduit Street blog. But for Don Butchko, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.